Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. We can see that illuminated sign that marks the end of the journey. This vaccine will help us to get past this pandemic once and for all. We need people to have faith that this vaccine is safe and that they should take it. The thing that's going to stop us from seeing the end of this pandemic are people going, oh, I'm not so sure. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. A very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Now, a COVID vaccine offered to residents at every eligible care home in England. Now, that comes after a record day of vaccinations. Nearly 600,000 people being offered a jab on Saturday alone. The government is aiming to have offered a first dose to everyone in the top four priority groups by February the 15th. Charities like the Alzheimer's Society say they're still concerned, though, that the rollout of the jobs for staff has not been nearly so effective. Uh, but Social Care Minister Helen Waitley insists there's been a tremendous uptake from care home workers. I've spoken to staff in care homes uh, who've spoken about you know, whether they were nervous or worried at the beginning, but as they saw colleagues getting vaccinated and they realised the importance of doing this and that in doing this, they'll be helping to protect the vulnerable people they look after. But concerns around the economic impact of the pandemic are growing. The Institute of Fiscal Studies is warning that pupils could stand to lose an average of £40,000 each in lifetime earnings from the effects of school closures. That's a staggering loss of £350 billion to the UK economy as a whole. The think tank says the £1.5 billion so far invested in catch-up services is just not enough. Yeah, and that comes as business leaders have called on the government to work with them on a roadmap out of lockdown to ensure a post-COVID recovery. In a letter to Business Secretary Kwasi Kwarteng, the Confederation of British Industry says firms are in the dark about planning for the months ahead. Well, joining us now is Graham Stringer, Labour MP for Blackley and Broughton. Um, Graham, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, more than 600,000 people vaccinating a day, every care home resident in England offered the vaccine. I mean, the government, it has to be said, has turned around its handling of the virus, hasn't it? I think that's right. There's been a lot of uh, disastrous mistakes in, the, in, in dealing with this uh, virus from the government, but one has to give credit where credit is due. And the procurement of the vaccine and the rollout of the vaccine, there's been tiny hiccups, but by and large, it has been excellent. And what about, Graham, the uh, reporting around the number of people that have been vaccinated? A couple of weeks ago, you said the government were phobic around the numbers. Has that changed, do you think? I think that was a PR issue. They've got good PR now because they're doing a good job. When we interviewed uh, the minister who'd been given responsibility for vaccination, he would not uh, give us uh, targets and agree to tell us exactly what was happening on a day-to-day basis because they wanted to control the uh, news media. Uh, and if, if they'd have said, say, for Saturday that they were going to have three-quarters of a million and then it got 600,000, then it would have been a bad news story, not knowing that in advance. 
has enabled them to control the news agenda. So every day they've got a, a, a good news story. And I think that's not a good way for government to behave. They should tell us what they intend to do and try and do it. But that doesn't just take away from the fact uh, that the rollout of the vaccination uh, programme has been done uh, really well. Now, I suppose the corollary of that is can the UK are now afford to be generous. Now, you'll be aware of the row that uh, really crystallised things last week with the European Union, the problems with AstraZeneca. The government's standing well apart from that as far as it could. They're obviously concerned about what went on in regards to the Northern Ireland border. But have we reached the point where we can say, yes, we will share vaccines with other countries while our own efforts still underway? Because at the end of the day, no one's safe till everyone's safe. I think that final point is absolutely... Uh, right. There is a, if 100% of people in the United Kingdom were vaccinated and very few people in the rest of Europe were vaccinated, uh, then you would just get transmission uh, across the English Channel and the North Sea. Uh, so it is, the whole world needs to be vaccinated. I don't think we're at the point in this country yet uh, where we can decide what to do with the excess uh, vaccine that has been ordered, partly because it's not manufactured uh, yet. These are complicated manufacturing processes, and there may be uh, mistakes, glitches uh, in that uh, pipeline of, of vaccines. But at some stage, uh, then the government has to decide what it is going to do uh, with that surplus and how and where it will uh, agree for it to be distributed. And what about the border issue? I, I suppose that sits alongside this in terms of making sure that Britons don't uh, contract the virus. Has, has the government gone far enough in terms of shutting down the borders, given the amount of international travel that usually happens in the UK? I mean, the example that's been given to us so much by Conservative MPs defending their policy is that places that have been stricter, like Australia and New Zealand, have much less international travel. I, I, I think there is the loud noise of stable doors being slammed uh, when a whole herd of horses have uh, left the stables. I, I know we're, we're all professors of hindsight, uh, but it would have made sense uh, to close the borders uh, and the airports and do more testing at airports nine and ten months ago. That's gone. Uh, now, as we can begin to increase the number of people vaccinated, uh, there should be a short period where the airports are effectively closed, international travel uh, is limited, but that can't go on forever. And I think the question that lies beneath all this is at what stage does the government say uh, that we have to live with this uh, uh, virus forever, like we live with flu and various other viruses? It will infect some people and some people will get poorer and some people will die. That happens every year with flu. We know that. Our government has to be very brave to say that. But we cannot go on damaging the economy in the way that it is being damaged. We eventually have to open up our, our airports, our seaports uh, to international travel. Otherwise, we will not have an economy which can afford to produce vaccines. Graham, what about the, the, the thing about vaccinating particular groups within society? And, and there's been a big push from Labour about getting vaccinating teachers and this being a way 
to get schools to reopen soon. I mean, people say, well, yes, but maybe there are people needing to be higher on that list. Well, where do you stand on that? I think the first four categories where people have been vaccinated, it's been clear and it has not been uh, controversial. It's been those people over 70 and those people with underlying conditions that would make them very vulnerable uh, to the, to this virus, i.e. people have been vaccinated to save lives. Everybody agrees with that. When you start prioritising uh, not to save lives, but to uh, keep the economy going or to get children back to school or to get public services or private services going, it becomes much more difficulty. What is the priority between the checkout person in a supermarket and a teacher? One is providing an essential service in food, which we all need. The other is providing an essential service in educating children. That's a really difficult uh, judgment. And when you put that against the judgment, against if those people are getting vaccinated, uh, who isn't getting vaccinated, who may be vulnerable uh, to the, the virus, it becomes a much more uh, difficult decision. I'm content at the moment that we are vaccinating people who are really vulnerable uh, uh, to dying from, from this disease. Hopefully, because as we've already talked about, there are a large number of doses of the vaccine in the pipeline, then in the near future, we can get to virtually everybody and those pretty difficult dilemmas uh, will cease to exist. That's avoiding the question, I know, but that's the background to it. And, and what about the economic angle that you, you touched upon? I mean, it's not just supermarket workers, it's, it's anybody and, and often very young people um, who, who work in, in cities and all the rest of it. They keep the economy going. The argument is that ultimately that is going to help save everybody money if the exchequer can take a little bit of the weight off and stop supporting certain people, uh, which will be universally beneficial down the line. I am... Um strongly in favour of getting the economy, economy moving again. And there will be risk uh, to everybody because we're not going to eradicate uh, this virus in the way that SARS and MERS were eradicated. It's going to be endemic around the world uh, for a long time to come. So we have to get people uh, back to work. It may not be next week, but the time is uh, pretty soon. And again, one of the things I don't agree with the government, they will come back to the House of Commons in March and ask for their sort of powers to enable them to do more or less anything they want uh, during this uh, epidemic. I will vote against them having those powers because apart from the vaccine, I think they've made a lot of mistakes and we have lived now for 12 months with arbitrary government. That's not good for a democracy and it's Partly, they've made decisions that have undermined uh, the economy. Very briefly, if you would, Greg, because we're running out of time. Brexit, uh, a lot of people thinking that this has been economically very challenging uh, in the last few weeks, uh, particularly a lot of businesses. I mean, you're a Brexit supporter. What's your take? I think that those people who voted to remain in the EU have had a big Many of them have had a change of heart after the way the Commission tried to behave over restricting the flow of vaccines that had already been ordered from the European Union to uh, elsewhere. I I, I didn't at the time agree with putting a border down the uh, Irish Sea and the decision for 
Northern Ireland. I hope that the government, and this is a difficult thing to say, will try and renegotiate with yeah. the European Union the uh, the decision on Northern Ireland. That's not working. The, the overall, mm-hmm. I think everything else can be dealt with, but Northern Ireland is a difficulty. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. Uh, and Roger, we start with uh, an issue that Labour is is pushing quite heavily today. Yeah, cladding. It's been around for a while, of course, because it's all relating to the appalling Grenfell disaster. But uh, Labour leader Keir Starmer is calling on the government to set up a national cladding task force to address the question as to why millions of Britons are still living in flats clad in flammable materials. Four years since that terrible, terrible fire. Uh, Labour is using an opposition day motion to force a vote on the crisis that's bankrupting leaseholders across the country. Essentially, no one owning one of these flats has a hope of selling it as they're effectively rendered unmortgageable. Instead, they have to pay for 24-7 fire wardens to patrol the premises, stump up tens of thousands of pounds of their own money to have the cladding removed, and all the while, the value of their properties plummets. Well, ministers have vowed to help, but progress has been painfully slow, with the Housing Secretary Robert Jenrick under pressure from Tory MPs to do much more. Yeah, it's a horror show, isn't it? If you're one of these people, you saved up all that money, got onto the housing ladder, and then you're weighed down with something that you can't sell on, and it's going to cost you a fortune to keep going. Uh, The other issue here is uh, the government looking at new support to encourage property owners in flood hit areas. So discounted insurance premiums could be offered to those people who install measures like barriers, air brick covers, flood resistant wall coatings. Insured households that are flooded could not only claim money for damage, but also additional funds to make their homes more resilient. The government has funded at least 23,000 property flood resilience measures since 2009, but is now looking at ways it can increase uptake. This coming, of course, with what seems to be annual flooding and some quite serious incidents as well over the last few years, never a good moment for the government and, of course, never a good moment for the people who are affected by this. Yes, and of course we are living through a very rainy period at the moment, which kind of concentrates minds. But meanwhile, Brexit, anyone interested in how the repercussions from Brexit it will play out over the next months and years should le- read the latest report by Peter Mandelson's firm Global Council. It's written by the former Theresa May advisor Alex Dawson and it lists several areas of potential divergence including health data liberalisation, a new data protection framework, new regulations encouraging investment in long-term productive assets and freedom to forge relationships with financial centres beyond the EU. I think there'll be a lot of debate about all that. Oh, yes, absolutely. Now, back to the vaccine situation. The government coming out of it 
looking like they've got something right in this pandemic at last and well ahead of much of the rest of the world. Uh, to quote Graham Stringer, Labour's Graham Stringer, talking to us just a moment ago, credit where credit's due. But how is it affecting public attitudes? Joining us now to discuss is Ben Page, CEO of Ipsos Mori. Uh, ben, curious to ask then how, how well the public think the government is really getting on with these vaccinations. We're hitting these milestones. Is it registering with people? Well, they're still more likely to say the government's doing a bad job than a good job in terms of dealing with the pandemic as a whole. But no, the one area they get credit for, fair enough, absolutely, is vaccination. So, no, it looks as though we, you know, we may be turning a corner. Um, and in fact, it's actually given the polls a, a, a nudge. And for the first time, we're seeing the Conservatives going into the lead again after being neck and neck for some time. So it appears to have nudged them a few points ahead of Labour. One of the key issues that Labour is pressing is for teachers to be vaccinated, of course, as a way of reopening schools. Now, I mean, is that is that something that Labour will find support for out there? Well, when we asked people who, which group of workers beyond the existing priority groups, which, of course, includes people working in the NHS and care homes, teachers are top. And given that they're with large numbers of kids, you can you can sort of understand the logic. So, no, there's half the public would choose teachers to be the next priority group, and that's ahead of emergency workers or the police. That makes sense. And what about other people? Who else should be prioritised, uh, are, are people saying? Well, certainly not. Journalists and prisoners are at the bottom of the list, which I thought was quite <laughs> entertaining. Um, but So you're down with the prisoners. But other people are being um, vaccinated, but not people who are necessarily looking after them at home. So they're up there. And actually, people over 60... Um, they're also seen as a priority group. So there's, you know, the public's reasonably sort of like, you know, pragmatic about it. Um, and we'll, I don't think that it's, this isn't going to be a sort of make or break. I think the biggest challenge the government faces, as you know, is that only nine people in 100 think the current measures are too strict. And about five times more than that believe that they're not strict enough, even though most things are now shut. So the public has an excess of caution. It believes the government went into lockdowns late, and it's going to be very wary of, you know, if, if, they, if they unlock too soon and the, and the virus takes hold again, uh, that will be really damaging for the government. One of the most interesting things I think about all this in lots of areas, Ben, is, is the age profile. Because it seems that, uh, for example, uh, younger Britons more likely to prioritise based on age and uh, those who are 60 to 69 seem to be the ones that they want to get through but of course there's the much older ones and even attitudes towards regulation seem to be very very age-based don't they well they are but it's not i mean even even among young people more young people say measures are, are not strict enough than too strict so it's not it's not as, say, as dramatic as it is on, on sort of voting intention where basically if you're under 40 you don't vote conservative and if you're over 40 you don't work, vote for many, anybody else pretty much i mean i'm characterizing wildly so there is, a, there is a relationship in terms of how you feel about the government and what you think about the pandemic. And if you're a Labour voter, you're more negative. But overall, to be quite honest, there's less, in some ways, less difference by age, much less difference by age in the attitudes than there is in the death rate. So the young, of course, are, are very unlikely to die, although some are. But they're actually, relative to their likelihood of dying, they're still pretty cautious. And then in terms of who's doing well in holding the government to account, if not Labour... Who else might be, uh, dare I ask, doing well? Well, uh, celebrities and, uh, you know, and news anchors. So Marcus Radford, 23 years old, very, very popular campaign over free school meals. And he's seen by the public, by the majority of people, is doing a good job at holding the government's account. 
followed by Piers Morgan on Good Morning Britain or whatever, whichever show he's on, GMTV. And uh, even all politicians, Labour and Conservatives, uh, in, in their wake, quite frankly, and the media. I do think that it helps to be quite, to be fair to the politicians. It's much easier to be a celebrity and take a single issue than it is to actually have to be a politician. And as soon as anybody becomes a politician and puts a label on themselves, somebody will hate them. So I'm going to give them a, I'll give them a sort of, you know, some, some sort of lenience on that, quite frankly. But no, it's, it's, it is very noticeable. Well, in, in that case, OK, so we've got Piers Morgan, we've got Marcus Rashford. What about the others you'd more often expect? So obviously, uh, Keir Starmer himself, is he well regarded? Are Conservative backbenchers well regarded? Is the not, Labour well, Party opposition... No, you've only got around a quarter or so mentioning those, either of those. So Keir Starmer isn't, isn't seen as doing particularly brilliantly. And his overall, although his ratings are much, much higher than the man who he replaced, Jeremy Corbyn, he is struggling to, to, to get ahead. I mean, he's now um, potentially just behind in the polls and his personal ratings have been slowly drifting downwards. So, you know, he, he's obviously pointing out that the government has been late and most people would agree with that. But I think, again, people give the government a fair degree of, um, support just because they're the government in, at a time of crisis. So Labour has its work cut out, but it does have a few more years to a general election. And, uh, you know, we, we will see. But it's, it's very notable that back in 2012, three years before the 2015 election, the Labour Party was 12 points clear in the polls of the Conservative Party, and they went on to lose. This time, Labour is still behind in the polls. And what about Nicola Sturgeon in all of this? Because, I mean, for a lot of the pandemic, she was moving ahead of, of England in terms of Scottish restrictions. Now we see uh, the UK doing very well with its vaccine rollout. Scotland not necessarily performing as well. Is that impacting her? We haven't seen signs of that yet, to be honest. I mean, her ratings are so stratospheric in Scotland compared to Boris Johnson's that it would take quite a lot. Um, they'd have to really fail badly. I think, to see that move. Remember, about three quarters of Scots think that she's doing a good job in handling the pandemic compared to only 14% who would say the same to Boris Johnson, despite the fact that death rates in the two countries have been pretty similar. But she's probably been a more effective and consistent communicator, I would suggest. And it's also easy for her. She's also not responsible for Brexit, which, of course, is not popular in Scotland. So, about the, I mean, you mentioned at the beginning uh, or alluded to what voting intentions might be. We're a long way, obviously, from an election, at least a national election. But at this point, the, the way the Conservatives have handled this has pulled them again slightly further ahead of Labour. But overall, what is the voting position at the moment? Well, the, the, the two parties are broadly around 40% each. I mean, there's a bit of noise in the data. There's a poll out this weekend with giving the Conservatives a three-point lead for the first time. But they're, they're basically sort of neck and neck. The other parties like the, the UKIP party, or now called, I think it now calls UKIP still going, but the Brexit party or the Reform party, the Lib Dems, Lib Dems now polling behind the Greens, all of the others have been obliterated in this sort of binary argument. But what was the binary argument over Brexit in the 2019 election? Or rather, it, it very much felt like that. Uh, but the point is, a large majority for Boris Johnson, he does have a, an electoral coalition to hold together. It's, it's uh, He's got his, you know, socially conservative voters in all parts of the country, but possibly with divided views over how to run the economy between the northern, northern ex-Labour seats that he's now taken into his coalition. But, of course, the two main British parties, Labour and the Conservatives, have absolutely nothing to get, you know, been wiped out effectively in Scotland. And the polls are still suggesting that, to, uh, that Nicola Sturgeon is going to do the same again in the May Scottish yeah 
parliamentary elections. And that means, of course, that the calls for yet another another referendum in Britain uh, or a referendum in Scotland over Scottish independence will become ever louder. And, there's, you know, given the instability of politics in Britain and around the West in the last 10 years, frankly, I, I wouldn't like to bet on anything particularly happening. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.